Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health. Today, we have on an absolutely fascinating guest. His name is Jared Dempsey. He is a chief scientific officer for Track 9, which is a clinical data collections firm. And as everyone that listens to the show regularly knows, I am obsessed with data and I'm very focused and Circle Social is very focused on adding clinical outcomes tracking data into what is being provided to uh, providers across the country to make what I call clinically informed feedback loops so that they can improve care across the entire program. Before we get into that, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. All right. So Track 9 is a software system, and it's basically a data tracking system for clinical outcomes. So they operate in a couple different ways. They have standard instruments that they use when a patient comes into treatment, and then those standard instruments are also used uh, across the program throughout the client's stay. By using a standardized system, what they're able to do is provide location-specific data, program-specific data, and then aggregate data for the entire country across all of their clients. Why I love this is because what's often missing from treatment is a real understanding of how to make data-driven decisions to better the program. And that can be deciding which clinicians are most effective and producing positive outcomes for treatment, which changes to the program, additions to the program, adaptations to the program, create better treatment outcomes, or which interventions have to be used even on a one-to-one basis with providers. On top of that, as we all know, there is really no standardized national data. So the constant talks about value-based care and the constant pauses and reluctance that providers have to move forward with and, and even payers in terms of applying pressure because there's no standardized data, well, Track 9 is able to hopefully fill some of that gap, right? By providing an aggregate data set across the country, across clients with standardized assessments and instruments that make an apples to apples comparison, we can start to understand what works and what doesn't work. And what's really fascinating, as Jared will talk about, is that that changes. It changes based on region. It changes based on facility. It even changes based on the staff. If a new CEO comes in, what works in that particular facility can actually change over time. So as I constantly talk about on the show and as we constantly talk about with our clients at Circle Social, strategy is everything because the real-life elements that make up what is affecting your business or what is affecting the outcomes of your treatment program constantly change. 
right? Whether it's something simple like seeing the opioid crisis change and we're starting to see more meth and cocaine be an issue, or whether it's the age demographics of who's using or the support systems that are available or the capabilities of your own internal staff, that is going to change the quality of your program. It's going to change the outcomes that you get and the influences that those outcomes have. There is no such thing as a paint-by-numbers approach to clinical care, just like there's no such thing as a paint-by-numbers approach to organizational growth or to marketing. You have to adapt at every single point you know, in your operations. And that's changing day to day, month to month, year to year. You can't just copy what other people are doing. And unfortunately, you can't even copy what you did last month all the time. You can use it to make informed decisions. But that's why we always talk about having a data informed decision, not a data driven decision, because the data doesn't predict the future and it can't tell you the whole story there's always going to be too many variables at any given time so kind of getting on my little soapbox around the data there but i, I just love what track nine does with the clinical outcomes i think it is in highly highly valuable for any provider whether they're using track nine or another system but track nine has one of the best ones i've seen so far so i was really excited to have jared come on the show and he'll walk us through how track nine works the outcomes that they're seeing and even give us some very clear specifics on things that have uh, an immediate impact on the likelihood of someone to AMA, the likelihood of someone to have a more positive or a more negative treatment outcome based on how the program is being delivered. So with that, let's jump into the interview. Hey, Jared, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show here. Excited to have you. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a bit about Track 9? Absolutely. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, my name is Dr. Jared Dempsey. I am the Chief Scientist and Executive De Director of Track9.com. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist. Most of my academic career, or my career has been in academia, studying addiction. And about three to four years ago, we transitioned. We, my business partner and I left academia because we saw that outcomes and assessments was not being done correctly at treatment centers, and we started Track 9. Explain that a little bit. You're saying that outcomes and assessments weren't being done correctly. Now, there's a battery of a, an array of assessments out there currently. Was it that there wasn't a good one that was developed or that the ones that existed weren't being used appropriately? Well, let me just start by saying it is. it wasn't necessarily the fault of the treatment centers. This is a field of science. It's called psychometrics. and the treatment centers don't really have that type of personnel on staff. So you could go from the range of it's just not an area that they were experienced in. And so many treatment centers, and we're talking about this was a couple of years before Jayco and CARF came out and said, you have to do standardized assessments. We started this. So it was a while back. So you could go to the side of they didn't have the expertise to know what to select all the way to the other side of the spectrum in that we've seen back then that some treatment centers were building their own instruments or cherry picking certain instruments to make themselves look better. So they weren't using standardized instruments that could be evaluated across centers or to be able to adequately evaluate based on what we know with the science. So what's your recommendation in terms of what instruments facilities should be using? 
That's a great question. I'll tell you that one of the reasons that we wanted to create an ethical company. I'm not interested in just getting the lion's share of business. What I want is for people to start to utilize the same instruments so we can come together and adequately compare and understand our field. So with that in mind, Track9 only uses standardized science-based instruments and most importantly, that are in public domain. Now this means that treatment centers or individuals can go get these instruments and utilize them and directly compare them even to some of the national norms we have. If you were to talk about what do I recommend that treatment centers assess, there is a constellation that we assess, those nine instruments, which we believe are critical and we chose them based on scientific results. But if I were to say that there are some that are most important, it likely would be depression, which is a Center for Epidemiological Studies depression. Anxiety, Penn State Worry Questionnaire is a great instrument. Those two are particularly important. You have to assess cravings. You also have to assess their commitment to sobriety. Now, those factors help build not just a monitoring system to see how they are responding to treatment. But as far as our system is concerned, we use those standardized scores to then build out risk ratios and predict who will actually fail treatment in the future and help these treatment centers use their resources smarter instead of adding additional resources, devoting the same amount of resources to those who are in greatest need. There's a lot I want to unpack there. Let's start with just determining uh, the validity of a particular assessment or instrument. You know, what, in your opinion, makes a good instrument? And if I'm a new center director or a new owner of a facility, I, I haven't done this before. I'm not a clinician. This isn't my expertise. What should I be looking for in a validated instrument? That's a great question. I would say the first thing is you don't take anyone's opinion. You have to look at peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. Now, there are a lot of great locations where they can gather this information for you. But in essence, these instruments have to be psychometrically evaluated. You have to make sure that you're assessing what you intend to assess. You have to make sure that you've got reliability within the instrument. So if you assess metric variables that go into uh, evaluating instruments to make sure that they are appropriate, I would say the number one thing to do, and this is not just with assessments, but even when you're looking at treatments in general, medical procedures, you look at peer-reviewed scientific journal articles. So what we have to do as scientists, we conduct the research in a very rigorous way. We collect the data, we evaluate the data, and then we send it to a peer-reviewed journal. And what that does is they find other scientists that are experts in that area, and they send the paper to them anonymously. And they say, tell us if this is sufficient, if this is rigorous enough where we should accept it and publish it. And it has to go through that peer-reviewed process where you have one scientist or scientists creating the instrument, proving that it is effective. Then it goes to a completely uh, different set of scientists 
that have no vested interest in whatever you're doing, and they evaluate evaluate and make sure that it is appropriate. So you're obviously talking about the fact that you want something that is peer-reviewed and really recommended and then approved by the scientific community with some kind of consensus. From a more practical standpoint in terms of you know understanding what you talked about, I want to be able to use this instrument to make accurate predictions about what my patient's going to need. What actually parts of the instrument are you looking at or what am I really... Sh- not even necessarily uh, looking at evaluating an instrument, but what do I need to understand? What are the main data points I need to look at to help start making some of those uh, risk-based assessments for my patients coming into treatment? That's a great question. So I'll tell you that there are certain uh, variables. When Jayco says, look, it's not enough that you, or joint commission, uh, when they say it's not enough that you do an assessment at the beginning and at the end, you have to do it on a regular basis and you have to adapt your care to respond to the individual. If you've got good instruments, that is so obviously true that we will see the patients begin to drop in optimism and commitment to sobriety before they leave AMA. We will see that stress anxiety start to increase before they leave AMA. So you certainly want to adapt your care based on that, evaluating are these pathology symptoms coming down fast enough or do we need to try something different? And are these resilience factors, the good protective factors, are they increasing? An interesting part what we see in our system is the if you're looking at a patient, an individual patient clinically, what I love to evaluate and, and have the therapist focus on is two factors specifically in our battery. Commitment to sobriety, which was created by John Kelly, a Harvard professor. It's accessible to anyone who wants it. And then we have an instrument that's looking at quality of life and addiction recovery. So think of those two concepts. One of them, commitment, is assessing are you going to stay sober? The other instrument, Quality of Life and Addiction Recovery, created by Alexandra Labe, another scientist, the uh, Quality of Life and Addiction Recovery is assessing, do you think you would be happier in the future if you stayed sober? So think about that. You've got, are you going to? And do you think you'll be happier? Now, that combination tells you so much about your patient. You will have certain patients that have are very, very committed. I absolutely will stay sober. However, I think I'd be happier if I used her drink. That is so critical clinically to know that information. And you can see that by collecting that information. You'll also have the reverse. You'll have people who are lower on commitment. They believe that they're going to use in the future, but they absolutely know that they would be happier if they stayed sober. So those two instruments by themselves tell you so much about your patient and how they're progressing. Now, how does a clinician use that? So they've got this clinical instrument here. How do they adapt their interventions to tailor it to the information they got from the assessment? So that is an excellent um, question. I'll tell you just today, I was on the phone with the treatment center on a regular basis. They have us call in and talk to their treatment team. 
So we've had several patients that we evaluated today where we could see that anxiety was not improving. It came in high and it was staying high. Now, depression was decreasing, stress was decreasing, but anxiety was not. And we talked about potentially trying to identify what was behind that anxiety, what was causing it, discussing it with the patient, maybe taking a CBT approach, a science-based approach to actually specifically targeting the anxiety, teaching coping skills with anxiety. So a lot of these things, if you see that certain variables are not going in a positive direction, it's about trying different science-based clinical approaches that have been validated in helping those particular issues. With So actually, let's talk a little bit about track nine, because you're getting some data points here. It might help the audience understand where you're pulling this information from. Can you give us a little bit of overview around what is track nine? How does the software work? What data is it collecting? You know, what kind of dashboards do you have? Let's let's just do a broad overview here. Sure. Um, So track nine, which is TRAC9.com, That is a system we created to collect a battery of standardized instruments. We are scientists and clinicians, and what we wanted to do is create a battery that is comprehensive, that is collecting all of the variables that are necessary. We didn't come and start with an approach with a theory, but rather, as scientists, we started with the concept of let's go to the research and let's identify what variables best predict long-term sustained recovery. So when we find those variables, you know, for example, we know that spirituality is incredibly tied to that long-term sustained recovery. It's also directly tied to things like reductions in cravings. Well, then we went to the scientific literature and said, all right, what instruments can we identify that assess spirituality and are brief and can be put into this battery, now we can watch spirituality over time. So we collect a battery of nine different instruments. Those include commitment to sobriety, spirituality, optimism, quality of life and addiction recovery, which we discussed earlier, depression, anxiety, cravings, and those cravings can be assessed in two ways. So we're asking them in writing, how much they are craving. And then we also do visual cue reactivity. So we're showing them five images of their particular drug of choice, and they're rating how much craving that causes. Now, before anyone becomes distressed about that, let me let you know that there's over 20 years of scientific research that shows this is not just helpful diagnostic showing you where your patient is, but is incredibly therapeutic in and of itself. We've assessed over 25,000 patients, and those are every week. So we are well over conducting over 100,000 batteries on patients in treatment centers. And what we see is the average patient has a reduction in visual cue reactivity of craving by over 70% after one month of treatment. Now, that means when that patient leaves, that If they are exposed to that cue again, they will experience over 70% less reflexive craving when encountering it, which is why it's actually incredibly therapeutic as well. And the last, the ninth instrument is stress, and we know stress is the best predictor of relapse. So the TRAC-9 system collects 
all nine variables, collects it on a regular basis, it plots it, it shows you where the patient is uh, progressing on all of these different factors. You can see if there are certain things that are deviating, which we can clearly see when there's something happening with the patients. By the way, what we found, there's some interesting information we found, is we see that um, family visit weekend is associated with increases in anxiety and stress. So it is quite responsive to what's occurring during treatment. Now, that in and of itself is what the system is used for. We also, it follows the patients after they leave. But I'll tell you the number one reason um, our customers use us is we have an AMA predictive algorithm. What this does is it is taking patients as soon as they walk in the door, and it is running them through a st statistical equation, and it is identifying those people who will, in the future, most likely terminate treatment early on you, leave AMA against medical advice. Being able to identify those people early Yes, it, it helps generate substantial revenue. Some estimates have said that the average, on average for a residential treatment center, that when a patient leaves AMA, that's $20,000 of lost revenue. That's important. But what's more important is we know it's not dramatic in our field to say, if a patient leaves or terminates treatment, for a certain number of those individuals, that equals death. So being able to stop those individuals is incredibly important. That's one of the reasons, I would say the most important reason why our customers use us. And um, the build out of that was pretty interesting. I'll, I'll tell you about at some point uh, today. But what we find is one algorithm is not sufficient to predict at all different locations. So each of our customers have their own unique algorithm and statistical equation that's built based on their own data. That's fascinating. So there's a couple of things that I think I also want the audience to understand. So obviously you have this whole array of instruments that you're providing, but when and where are those instruments being provided? So you've got the initial intake, right? The biopsychosocial, and then you guys are also assessing patients daily, weekly. Just kind of walk us through a little bit of the logistics. Sure. So the instrument is set up where you put them into the system, it's going to do a custom set of about 10 different questions, which we call the intake set. So the patient arrives to treatment, they're going to do their initial assessments, you put them into the system. We recommend that that happens within three days. Sometimes when people are detoxing, you can't get them to focus enough to do the assessments, but within three days. Then we recommend you do an assessment at least once a week in treatment and at discharge. That information is being plotted. And then before a therapist starts any individual therapy session, they open up that graph and they look at how are things progressing. That is incredibly beneficial. In fact, we have seen that it is inherently tied to whether a patient will leave AMA. That when we statistically control for all of the different factors that influence if a patient will fail treatment. And we isolate it to what is the effect of if your therapist looked at the data. We see a very strong relationship where if your therapist does not look at the results, your patient is now more likely to fail treatment. Interesting. 
So what I want to kind of really get across to listeners and what I love about what you guys are doing, obviously, because I'm a data guy, but you're taking what has traditionally been a really subjective assessment, right? Each provider, each clinician, therapist, they tend to kind of do the assessments in their own way, right? And so it's not standardized per se. And then it's often very subjective throughout the entire process. So how is Jim doing this week? Jim seems fine, right? Or Jim was a little bit stressed out in group today, but I think he's okay. And so what you're actually doing is formalizing and standardizing the entire process so that there is one way to get that information, that information is consistent. It's apples to apples every time. And it's happening on uh, at least a weekly basis, right? So rather than just being a subjective experience and, you know, a clinician or a behavioral health tech noticing that someone might be having a bad day or a bad week, you've got this tracking and then you're actually comparing it to other patient data sets. So you've got a very large, as you said, 200,000 plus uh, data sets around how old the person is, what their primary drug of choice is, where they're coming from. And you're able to then take that and say, okay, well, statistically speaking, this woman who's, you know, 40 years old and primary drug of choice is heroin, normally at week one, this is what we see with that particular patient. And your patient is actually below those levels or they have higher levels of depression. So we need to talk about that patient. We need to look at some additional interventions. You're providing uh, an amazing amount of insight into what the clinicians can actually take action on to provide better treatment to patients. Do you just kind of want to comment on some of those pieces and how you're seeing that play out with your clients? Absolutely. So I'll tell you that we are consistently leaning on the scientific research. And here is a phenomenon that is quite robust, is your patients will be more disclosive and more honest if they are filling out an instrument in comparison to the therapist directly asking them questions. Now, this is not shocking to scientists. It's in a variety of fields. I mean, you can even look at... um, many different areas of science, and we see this holds, that they are more willing to be disclosive in this instrument than they will tell you. You may say to your patient when they sit down, how are you doing? How are you feeling? How's the depression doing? And they'll say, yeah, it's pretty good. And then you look at how it's changed over time, and there's actually an increase. And you're able to show them and say, okay, that's interesting you say that, because actually in comparison to last week, it's gone up. What do you think that's about? And then they begin to disclose more information. We can't just rely on clinical intuition and think that we can just intuit all of the different factors and how they're changing across time. You have to be able to collect this in a rigorous way to identify and evaluate how your patient's actually doing. Love that. So let's explore a little bit around what you've seen in terms of what clinicians are able to do with this. You know, do you have any just anecdotes or case studies in terms of what how you've seen people using the tool and what results they've gotten so far? Yeah, absolutely. One of the the, we, the system and the t- features that we've built out actually have come about based on our experience. So, for example, um, one of the things that I saw when we were looking at the data was that there was such a strong relationship with whether or not the patient actually, the therapist looks at the results. So 
So just imagine that for a second. And let's, by analogy, uh, compare this to, let's say you're being treated for high cholesterol by your physician. And you do a blood draw, they, they take your labs, and then you go into your physician, and then they look at you and say, how is your cholesterol feeling? Okay, well, let's change up that statin. And they never look at the, the test results. That's exactly what is happening with a lot of the treatment centers today. They're not collecting it, and then sometimes they're not looking at it. It's incredibly unethical. In fact, to tell you, to put some numbers to how important that is, when we did that study to look at what is the impact. Now, this is controlling for everything else statistically. If the therapist does not look at the first assessment, the patient is now 13% more likely to fail treatment. And that's the direct isolated effect from the therapist not looking at the results. If the therapist doesn't look at the first assessment and doesn't look at the second assessment, the patient is now 32% more likely to fail treatment. Now, why did we conduct that study? We clearly saw a relationship between many different treatment centers and we looked at the percent of treatment failure and the percentage of the results that were reviewed. And we saw this consistent relationship that was so strong that one of our customers who has many different facilities asks us every quarter to create that result, to plot that data, to show them how many uh, reports are being evaluated at what program. We found that it was so important, we created for supervisors this adherence tab so they can instantaneously look at all of the therapists at their location and see what percentage of the results are being evaluated by therapists. And the higher they can get those numbers, you will see that the percent of treatment failure begins to decrease at your location. Why? Well, we started investigating this because I was looking at a patient, at a bunch of patients who had failed treatment across our customers. When we first started, and I saw that one of the patients, over time, over the course of four weeks, they were decreasing in commitment, decreasing in optimism, increasing in stress, increasing in anxiety, increasing in cravings, and this was incremental every single week. Now, when I went and looked at the data, the therapist didn't look at it at a single point ever, which is why we created this adherence so that the supervisors, the clinical directors could watch in real time if they were looking at the results. But what is what we see over and over again is your patient will tell you when they're running into trouble. They'll tell you if they're starting to crave, if they're becoming more depressed, if they're thinking that they might actually consider using after they leave. They'll report that. And that can be picked up on, on these graphs and on these assessments. So are you saying that that can be picked up on through the kind of assessments that you're delivering, or are you saying that also they would be actually physically reporting that to their therapist or in their group or both? Most of the time, they're not going to report that. And most of the time, the therapists are not going to ask it. I mean, there's no therapist that's going to bring someone in every single session. Well, I say no, but that's always you're going to get some. But every time an individual therapy session starts, you're not going to ask the same question of uh, what, what's, how likely is it that you're going to stay sober for the rest of your life? I mean, it's just, it would be off. But if you ask those questions in assessment each week, 
now you can see how that's trending. You can make sure it's increasing over time. You can make sure it's staying at 100% if they're getting close to discharging. And you can engage with your patient if you see it coming down. You can say, look, last you've been at 100% commitment to sobriety for the last several weeks. Now it's at 80%. What do you think that's about? What's going on? What is, what is that related to? So it gives you an in with the potential issues that are occurring with your patients. I love this. Yeah, this is just something that obviously I've been pushing and, and you know my company has been pushing for a long time is really getting into the data around what clinical outcomes are. Uh, because if we don't have it, we can't see these analyses. We can't make these decisions. And everything we need to do should be some kind of clinically informed feedback loop, right? But you can't have a feedback loop if you don't have data. It's just like having a teacher that never gave an assessment. They would have no idea how well their students are doing, right? Did their students understand what they were talking about? You know, were they actually improving over time? You can't track that if you don't have the assessments in place. Additionally, if the teachers are not regularly looking at that data, then they're not thinking about it, right? They're not thinking about how to become better. They're not thinking about what's working and what's not working. So just as you're kind of talking about the fact of looking at the data makes the clinicians better clinicians because then they start to think in a really logical way, right? And a little bit more formulaic way that is going to allow them to make adjustments where needed. Are you seeing the clinicians that you're working with or that are using track nine start to become more, more focused on that kind of feedback loop? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we allow for our customers to even call in for consults if they have questions. We do see that they, um, it becomes a necessity and it's, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but it's almost sad in our field that a system like this is novel, that we're able to do this. I mean, just what does your physician do if they're monitoring your cholesterol and they're giving you a medication and it's not coming down? Well, they try something different. Right. They increase the dose. They switch to a different brand. That's exactly what the therapists are doing. Gosh, you know, I'm doing my standard protocol and going through all of these things, but I'm not touching anxiety. All right, well, let me take a different approach. Let me, well, maybe we should assess and see if there's PTSD going on. And, and we're not taking, well, maybe this is more associated with OCD because this anxiety is not coming down. You're giving your therapist the opportunity to actually monitor all these symptoms and adapt their care as necessary. They know how to do it, but oftentimes, the information is not standing out for the therapist. They can't see, and that's not the therapist's fault. There's a theory called just noticeable difference hypothesis that we see in humans. And in essence, what it tells us is if change happens at a slow rate, we are unable to detect it. And you can look at this even in physics weight. So if I had you holding 100 pounds and I added one pound, you likely wouldn't notice the difference. If I had you holding one pound and I added one pound, you would notice the difference. When you have a very high level of depression, which we see with a lot of patients coming in, decreasing, when you decrease or increase, you yourself may not even realize that. But the data is sensitive to it. Your therapist can now see, oh, it's gone up five points. Even when the patient themselves 
isn't necessarily consciously aware that it's gotten better or worse. That's exactly right. So you're talking about the clinician not noticing it, but then you just mentioned the patients as well, which is really important because a lot of patients come in and, and they see there's gradual improvement, but they don't see it because it's so incremental. So through track nine, are the patients able to see their own data at all? And are they able to say, oh, look, wow, my, my suicidal ideation did drop, you know, significantly over the past couple of weeks. And yes, we actually strongly encourage. So what we offer for the customers too is we it, it's important that we teach the therapists how to actually appropriately use the instrument. So for every one of the customers, we circle back in about a month after they're using the system and we give them a live advanced interpretation seminar, advanced interpretation of these of these results. And what we see and what we strongly encourage is we tell the therapists show the graph to your patients. Talk about the results, point to how things are increasing and decreasing, and make your patient part of the treatment team. Get their input or thoughts. And a common thing we will see is the depression will be coming down. They'll show that to the patient. The patient will go, yeah, I, I guess I am feeling better. I didn't, I didn't realize I was making, and wow, look where it was when I first came in. So it can be even a source of pride for your patients. And again, we do strongly encourage that they share this data with their patients. Absolutely. Uh, there's just so many values to data, and it's just something that unfortunately hasn't been applied to, to the clinical space and the treatment space for too long. But you know, uh, kind of to what you're speaking about and what the value that Track 9 brings here is, I mean, no one else was providing it before. It's very hard to create these tools, right? It's not easy. And the automated kind of aspect of it that you've got, so it's integrated to the treatment program, doesn't take a lot of time, it's standardized. You know, this adds a, a lot of value to the space because then we can start to compare these apples to apples. And that's exciting to me because this is what we need. We need a, a large aggregate data set so that some of these assumptions that we often make in treatment can be validated. And we can see exactly what you're talking about. Well, look, when people aren't looking at the data, we see a 32% worse outcome with the patients. Other other data points like that, other things that you've seen in the aggregate data in terms of what's really effective or really important from a, a clinical standpoint? Yeah, I would say even from a programmatic perspective. So what we do is we have an analytics screen so you can instantly plot, hey, let's look at the last three months, six months, year, whatever time frame you want of my treatment center. Now, along the lines of what you were saying about being able to see how you're doing, when you graph that information in our system, we will also show you a national reference line. So that is, based on your level of care, what we're seeing across the country on each one of these factors. How is that helpful? Well, it's a private way of you saying, how can I improve our program even more? Maybe overall, we're above the curve doing better than the national average and improving patient scores. Where can we do even better? And you scroll through this and you say, gosh, you know, we don't do it as well as a national average at reducing anxiety. We need to look at incorporating more anxiety coping techniques in our programming. So this is also something that's helpful for the treatment centers. Yeah, I mean, it's really about improving the program at the end of the day. And when people really think about it, there's so many advantages. So we talked a lot about the clinician and how they can use that data to improve um, interventions and treatments. 
But when you look at it from a leadership standpoint, you're doing the same thing. And so you can not only look across your clinicians, right? And you can say, hey, okay, well, Sue over here is getting way worse outcomes than everyone else. What's going on with Sue, right? And that can help improve your program through training or finding better staff. But at the same time, it allows you finally to be able to analyze changes in your programming. You know, so say, for example, that you add or you switch out a DBT group with, uh, I don't know, let's just say a CBT group. So you switch out DBT with CBT, do that over three months, and then you can see, you know, did that have a measurable impact on our programming for better or worse? And this will allow you to incrementally improve your program over time. Absolutely. In fact, we've actually seen how that can play a role in adjusting programming. We had a, a treatment center that's actually close to our corporate office here in Lubbock, Texas, and and they asked us about some of these averages, and we identified that optimism was not improving or at levels in their patients at the levels that we should see or in comparison to other facilities. Well, over the course of six months, they actually started implementing optimism-building programs and group therapy projects, and we saw that that started trending up, and they went above the national curve. You're able to see how you're performing, and how you can actually improve your care. We also have a supervision screen, and it can actually show you a scorecard, almost like a baseball scorecard in every one of your players, and you're seeing your therapist. So you're seeing the strengths and weaknesses clinically of your therapist. Why that's important is now we can go away from this archaic procedure in our field of let's assign the next patient to whomever has the lowest caseload. That's the old way. That's the stone age. Now what you're doing is you're matching the needs of a patient with the strengths of each one of your therapists. Right. So I guess what I'm really interested in then is just some uh, case studies in terms of your actual clients. And have you seen success or what, what results have you seen in terms of that improvement? I mean, you mentioned that optimism, for example, but, you know, have you really seen strong improvement in terms of the patients coming through, you know, three months, six months, a year after using your program? Yeah, absolutely. So if we talk about outcomes, too, one of the things I wanted to point out is, you know, we do outcomes and we follow the patients after they leave once a month for 12 months. But I like how you talked about the importance of these assessments during treatment. If you're focusing just on outcomes, you've missed the boat. That in order to have good outcomes, you have to have good monitoring in treatments. The patient, you have to know that they're improving. And we've seen this applied in many different ways and many different customers. We've been able to identify if there was an issue with a particular clinician, that their performance began to degrade, and the clinical supervisor was able to identify it. We're able to see that some locations are doing incredibly well in particular domains. Um, we have seen that some facilities have used this as a way to decide how they do in-house workshops. So we're going to train all of our clinicians on new skills. Okay, well, where are we the weakest? Where would it benefit? Let's do that in-house workshop and let's see if overall these scores start improving. Now, I'm really interested in the predictiveness of all this, too, which is something that we talked about, you know, the first time we connected quite a while ago. And you mentioned it early on in the conversation 
What are you seeing in terms of how predictive some of these instruments are for long-term recovery or what data do you have at this point? You know, so obviously we see a lot of improvements within the treatment program. How, how far out does that predictability um, extend? Well, we go out an entire year monitoring the patients to look at how they're doing. We do know that there are certain variables that are going to be associated with a patient relapsing soon after they leave. One of the most obvious ones is if they're not at 100% commitment to sobriety at discharge, they're likely going to relapse very soon. So it's a variable that you need to assess very closely. We also see that if they leave with some unresolved issues in depression and anxiety, that that is also going to play a role in relapse. But if we circle back to this predictive level, we know that when patients leave AMA, very likely, very often, they're going to be using right after that. And so what we do is we take a prediction of failure in the treatment program, and that can be an excellent proxy and help prevent some of these relapses. When you take that approach, it's not sufficient to just look at the results of one instrument. And that one instrument is not the same at every one location. So, and we see that it changes over time. So we've had treatment centers replace their clinical director or even their CEO. And we see that what predicts if a patient's going to fail begins to shift. The algorithms rebuild every month for every one of our customers. Now, we can take all of that information and we can identify for your particular location what is predictive of relapse. Now, of course, um, some of the listeners may be working at treatment centers and they may want to be able to identify this on their own and they may not be considering Track 9. I, I can give you some tips on how you can actually predict if patients are going to fail at your location in general. So um, just to uh, get a better understanding of this, we do some specific questions at that intake process of your patients, and that is always changing based on what we know in the science. That helps us build the algorithms in addition to the results on their anxiety, depression, stress, spirituality, all the nine factors. So, for example, one of the questions we ask is, was this patient admitted directly from the emergency room? There is a body of research that shows patients going into residential treatment if they present directly from the emergency room, they're at increased risk of leaving AMA. So if you have a patient that comes in, that should be a yes, no, whether or not you use our system. Are they presenting directly from the ER? Okay, that's, they've got slightly higher risk. We can look at another area of research. Do they have guilt associated with their eating habits? That's another factor that predicts for residential treatment and addiction treatment. If they do, if they say yes, that increases the risk of them failing treatment. Now, we don't just take into account those questions. We take into account the instruments, those custom questions based on the science, but then a plethora of risk ratios. We know if you assign it to certain therapists, they're at higher or lower risk of failing treatment. Based on their dread of choice, they're at higher or lower risk. All of those things can be combined to create an ultimate statistical equation custom from your location, but you can create uh, a very rough estimate of your patient's profile just based on the science with things like, are they coming directly from the emergency room? 
That's really interesting to me, that ER one in particular. What's the recommendation there? What have you seen facilities do? Are they changing something the way that they do intake or uh, support those patients? Or are they actually saying, hey, maybe we should wait a couple days and do something else before they, they intake? How does that play out? I would say the number one thing that we have seen with our customers, because we are able to make these predictions ahead of time and see who will eventually get to the point where they will want to terminate treatment. The most effective thing that we have seen is actually having that conversation. So if the patient, for example, they came directly from the emergency room, making sure your therapist during that first session says, you know, based on the science, your situation is putting you at increased risk of wanting to terminate treatment early. And for many patients, that can lead to death. So let's talk about that. What are we going to do if you start feeling like you want to terminate treatment in the future? Let's make a plan now. Just doing that will have a significant impact. I would say in addition to that, you want to identify those individuals that are at higher risk and you devote more of the resources to those individuals. So you're taking the same amount of resources and devoting them in a more appropriate or effective way. Great information. And this is right exactly to our point where you have the data and you're able to take that data to improve your programming and to improve outcomes for your patients. Something really interesting that, you know, you brought up a couple times here that I love is also how you're talking about, you know, you've got this aggregate data, but it doesn't necessarily apply the same to every single facility. Every single facility has its own particular risk characteristics that influence patient outcomes. And not only that, but it changes over time. And I mean, this is something that we pound in the client's heads over and over again. You know, when you're looking at your organization, whether it's from a business metric standpoint, a marketing standpoint, you exist in real time and real time things change. And so influences change, data changes. And so you can't paint by numbers, right? You can't just copy what someone else was doing. You can't even copy what you did last month necessarily. You have to constantly adapt to the existing reality. And of course, the clinical situation is no different. So I really, really love that you guys focus on that. Has that is that something that you've even seen maybe leadership uh, be surprised by or possibly learn from as they started working more and more with you? Um, I have seen people, leadership, very excited to hear the information. I've had them call and say, what can we do? My AMAs are pretty high this month. I need to get it down. How can we improve? We have one of uh, large customers that we have, which is a corporate customer. They actually had me uh, come out during their uh, annual meeting of CEOs. So they brought all their CEOs from all their facilities And what I did is I took every one of their locations and I said, we're going to talk about what predicts failure at your location. I said, all right, okay, location A, you need to focus on this, this, and this. And, you know, it looks like gender is predicting failure at your location. So you need to consider some of those gender-specific issues, you know, women in recovery, maybe that's being neglected. And then location B, okay, for some reason, uh, your therapists are really influencing who's failing. Let's look at what therapists are at higher risk ratios of failing. So we would go through each one, and they're furiously scribbling notes, and we know these adapt over time as well. So as you make improvements or as you change personnel, 
and and as you plug the hole, you may see, oh, you know what, optimism was trending really low at our program. Okay, well, let's start building optimism. Now that you've built up the optimism, certain other factors are now predictive because you've resolved that one issue. Yeah. Yeah, love it. We just had Rogers Behavioral Health on the show, and they talked about their continuous improvement programming. It speaks to the same point, right? You have to constantly look at the data, constantly make those adjustments in real time, and be focused on constant improvement because things are going to be changing. And as you, you know, accomplish uh, different tasks, as you complete objectives, as you overcome obstacles and challenges, well, then you can move on to the next one, you know, step by step. Absolutely. And I would recommend one more thing. What we do for, we encourage all the customers, we talk to the clinical directors about, is take failures as an opportunity to improve your program. So what we highly encourage the clinical directors is every time you have a treatment failure, do what's in medicine they call a postmortem. Bring all your physicians in the room, display all the results, Everybody look at the data and they say, what should we have noticed? And that same thing should be done on a regular basis at treatment centers. When you have a patient that leaves AMA, showing all the data and how it's trending over time to the entire staff, a treatment team, and we go, guys, what should we have seen here? How can we improve? How can we do better at noticing what was happening here? So that's something that can be incredibly beneficial and help you continuously improve your programming. Super helpful. We talked a little bit about some kind of the aggregate data uh, or recommendations that you guys had. I'm just curious, is there anything specific you've seen around perhaps gender or age or even drug of choice that has jumped out in the data that seems to be different based on the demographic coming in? Um, yes. In fact, I mean, that's one of the things we take into account of how we run our equations. They're multivariate. So they're taking into account numerous variables all at once. And if you look at them in isolation, they may not necessarily be effective. So you may see for one location, you know, gender doesn't really predict if you're going to fail. But once you split gender by drug of choice, so is alcohol and male versus female or cocaine and male versus female that then it starts to come out as a predictive factor. So we certainly will see that some of these factors you need to take into consideration other variables at the exact same time in order to make a more appropriate prediction. That's super interesting. Can you give us a couple examples of ones that have that you guys have identified? Sure. One of the things that I've been seeing over and over is um, Number one, people with that designate cocaine as the primary drug of, of choice tend to make a lot of improvement. And surprisingly, and they do pretty well, surprisingly, in one sense, that what we see is that if marijuana is identified as a primary drug of choice, that's a really rough case. It's, it's pretty intractable. It's hard to get them... And, and look, maybe that has to do with our culture. You know, we just had elections in several more states just legalized recreational marijuana, including Arizona. And so then there's a societal shift in perspective, which makes it more difficult to overcome. But for whatever reason, and I've got some theories, uh, looking at primary DOC of marijuana, it, it's a tough case. What about age? Anything around age? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So age does absolutely make a difference. And what we're seeing is that your highest risk zones are about 18 to 30. And that as you get older, the risk ratio decreases. And as you get someone in their 60s and above, that risk is pretty low. What about the spirituality aspect? So you mentioned that in the beginning, that that was actually really important. And that's just kind of interesting to me, because obviously there is a lot of faith built into um, a lot of programming around 12-step facilitation, for example. But sometimes you'll have people that you know prefer uh, more rational or smart recovery and things like that. Have you seen anything in the data in terms of that spirituality piece? Like One, why is it important? And two, uh, the people that follow a spiritual track, are they more or less likely to have positive outcomes? Uh, Great question. It would be uh, difficult to respond, but one of the things that I want to say at the uh, start is that we chose the variable because the science told us that that is critical. And so it wasn't chosen based on theory or what we know about 12-step programs. The science literally tells us the more someone focuses on their spirituality and recovery, the less the cravings become. In fact, uh, I'm not in recovery, but my business partner is. And I came in when we identified this relationship and I said, oh my gosh, this is, look what I'm finding from the data that if you can get these patients to start increasing on spirituality, their cravings are going to start coming down. And she said, well, yeah, we've known that for a hundred years. That's in the big book. (laughs) So a lot of this, is uh, was it does coincide with 12 step, but when you take the 12 step out of there and you just look at the science, we know it's helpful. And so, some of the suggestions we've given is that when patients are craving, if a patient is hesitant to engage on that side, you can have that conversation on, you know, I know you say this isn't relevant for you, it isn't helpful, or you're not interested in it, but I know you're craving a lot, and that's that's really tough. And the science says that'll go, that'll lessen if you do focus on spirituality. Why don't we give it a shot? Let's see how it goes. And oftentimes that can be used as a tool to encourage or motivate a patient. And look, the ultimate goal is sustained long-term recovery, not using. And whatever methods we use to get there are less important than just getting there. Exactly. One step further on that. What does spirituality mean in terms of, you know, being more successful at recovery? Are you talking about going to church? Is that self-reflection and meditation? Like, what what does that actually mean? Well, um, we, um, when we look at it from a variable perspective, we are tapping in more to how often are you reflecting on a higher power? How, how often are you reading materials associated with a higher power? Um, how often are you engaging in activities? Our questions are more overt and concrete and leaving less room for an interpretation of what does that mean or what is what does the process mean for an individual person? In order for us to be able to more adequately assess, we look at those things that are more easily measurable with spirituality. Got it. All right. Well, kind of wrapping things up here. Final question for you is uh, payers. You know, how have the payers responded or do you know how your clients work and use your information in conversations with the payers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've even had some of our customers uh, fly some of our scientists out to discuss the results when they're trying to negotiate 
um, a uh, preferred status or a higher level. I know just last month we had one of our customers say, you know, we're renegotiating with uh, payer X. What can you do to help us give an argument? And when I pulled their data, I showed that they were two standard deviations better than the national average. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a slam dunk. This is easy. So it's very hard for the payers to decline some of these requests when you can back it up with science. And that's something else we suggest. When you're putting in requests for, say, extensions and care, you know, if you include the scientific citations and say, well, these are the reasons why I'm making this request, it's very difficult for them to decline or deny that request when you're backing that up with factual information and scientific references. Have you had any direct requests from the payers to, you know, connect with you and track nine and understand the data and what you're doing? There were some preliminary talks. We've stayed away from that. One of the things that we want to avoid is payers deciding whether or not they're going to make a decision on where they're going to approve based on location. We've started based on from a different perspective in that we're helping the treatment centers identify and improve their programming and support documenting that they're doing good treatment. And we haven't taken the approach of going directly to the payers. Uh, something else that we think is absolutely critical, important, and if you're going to engage in any assessment system, I don't care if you use ours. I'm a scientist. You know, my marketers are probably killing me for saying this, but I don't care if you buy it. But one of the things you need to consider for whatever system that you're buying, there are some critical questions you need to ask. Number one would be, who owns my data? For every other assessment system that I've looked into, you don't own your own data. They own your data, which means you can't control what they do with your data. With our system, we made sure it was very important that our customers own our data and we can purge their data from our system on request. And another one that I would say as a recommendation as you're considering systems is that you want to make sure your data is secure. So when you cross international boundaries, there are different laws associated with healthcare data. So we only use coders that are based in the U.S. so that they are regulated by U.S. policy. So another thing I would ask is, where are your coders based? Because that can add some risk if they're across international companies. That's an interesting one. That's one I had not thought about before. I like that. So, Jared, fascinating information. I mean, this is really the future of healthcare in general, not just behavioral health, getting into the data, creating some standardization, and then creating those clinically informed feedback loops. I mean, this is this is what we talk about all the time, and it will help patients, it will help providers. So I'm really glad that you came on and just shared a, a lot of that great information. If people want to reach out to you or connect with Track 9, what is the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way would be um, at track9.com, that's T-R-A-C-9.com. Uh, they can also call us up, and if you wanted to speak with me directly, you can actually ask for me. Uh, phone number is 888-792-7106. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. For all our listeners out there, this is Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we will see you guys next time.